Good morning, church. You know, 25 years in law enforcement and still in law enforcement, and this pulpit absolutely terrifies me. I, I was thinking earlier, you know, I'd rather be in a gunfight. Um, it's not as scary as this pulpit, and for two reasons. One, I'm preaching the Word of God, and that's a very scary and sobering thought. Um, and then the second reason is sinful and fleshly, because I listen to him. I'm like, I can't do that. I, I can't preach like that guy. So what am I even doing here? Well, that's that's sinful on my part. But the truth of the matter is, I sit back and I think, you know what? What is my mission? My mission is to faithfully preach the text. You know, if I can do that, it's not going to be as good as Philip. And it's certainly not as comfortable as a gunfight. But that's what my challenge is today and what we're going to do. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning as a church gathered corporately to worship, Father, I would just ask that we be uh, very sensitive to your word, that we would take this text seriously and, and that, that we not be changed, but rather transformed by it. In Christ's name I pray. Well, we're going to be looking at a text this morning in Galatians. Uh, I want to put, let's see, i got about 30 pages here, so bear with me. Don't worry, it's a PowerPoint slide, so they go quick. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So if you turn in your scripture there to Galatians 2, 11 through 14, we're looking at a portion of the text where the Apostle Paul is going to, in essence, oppose or challenge the Apostle Peter. Um, and if we'll look at the text, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Some of you may have other versions, but uh, beginning with uh, 2, 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And that's going to begin this um, portion that we're going to be looking at um, First of all, I want to get into a little bit of the context here. Um, in fact, let me just, let's do this. I'm going to change, just forget your, if you have uh, your bulletin out and you're following along my outline, I'm going to change it real quick. Um, if you would go back with me to Galatians 2.1. So this is going to be the section just prior, just prior to where we're at. In Galatians 2.1, I'm just going to read this first portion uh, all the way to verse 10, to give it a little more context to where we're at. Then after 14 years, 
I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and sent before them, though privately, um, privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul is proclaiming this gospel that he's been preaching. Remember, there is not another gospel. Paul said that earlier in chapter one. There's only one gospel. But he goes up before these disciples, continuing uh, to proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I wasn't running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so it's going to be important in our text today. He wasn't forced to be circumcised. Yet, because of, listen to this, false brothers who secretly were brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we had in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that, here, here, here this is important, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Uh, those, I say, who seem to be influential, that would be the apostles, added nothing to me. In other words, he preaches the gospel and and they don't add anything. They're like, okay, yep, you're right on target. Not that he was seeking their approval. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been in, entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, or he who worked effectively through Peter for his uh, apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked um, through mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me so that we could go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked that I remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, I cover that little section there because the issue there that we just looked at in the section before our text today was circumcision. Um, that was the issue there. In our text today, it's going to be dietary laws. Circumcision is in the background, but it's not the forefront of the text. It's going to be, do you have to obey the dietary laws and arguably even other laws? Uh, so, uh, first of all, let's let's begin in our text. But when Cephas came to Antioch, well, what's this Antioch? Antioch was a the third largest city in that particular area. Believe it or not, it boasted a population of a million people at that time. There were approximately sixty five thousand Jews. It was um, uh, it was kind of the epicenter or strategic strong point for political and even military. Um, but um, it was an absolutely beautiful city. The, the emperors had um, thrown lots of money in there to make it an absolutely good. It, it, was, it was a resort. Billy, if you're watching, you'll understand that. Uh, but it was a resort, and, and that, that it was just a beautiful town. Uh, Antioch, this is, oh, interestingly, if you care about the maps, Antioch, this particular Antioch is going to be the Antioch in Syria. There's another one, if you imagine the island of Cyprus, uh, and you kind of go north, northwest. Uh, There's another Antioch mentioned in Scripture, and that's the Antioch of Pisidia. But we're going to be dealing with the Antioch. Uh, another interesting fact 
I don't follow my, my outline very well, do I? Another interesting fact is uh, Antioch of, of Syria in this particular case, uh, it was in Paul's third missionary journey. He began in Antioch of Syria and went all the way up through the mountains there in Tarsus and up into Galatia and, and ended at Antioch of Pisidia. Okay, so let's look at the text again. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He opposed him. Now, uh, New King James translation, I, I like that here. It says he withstood him to his face. He challenged him. He literally opposed him. Now, can, can you imagine being the fly on the wall when the apostle Paul confronts the apostle Peter in front of everybody? That's kind of scary. So we look at this, this word opposed. What does it mean? Well, there's 14 occurrences in the New Testament uh, the particular word is, is used in two places. Check this out. James 4, 7. I'm only going to give you two examples of the 14. James 4, 7 to get the force. I, and I, this is important because words matter, right? Words matter in the text. And in this particular case, this is an exceptionally strong word. When he says he opposed or withstood him, this isn't just a, hey amen. Well, we've got to talk about some correction. This is serious opposition. Let me give you two scriptures. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, oppose the devil, and he'll flee. Now, how, how much effort should you put into resisting the devil? Quite a bit, right? Well, there's that word. Again, in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. There, there it is again. So all I want to point out is the nature of the words that Paul is using. John Calvin made an interesting uh, comment. Even a dog barks if he sees anyone assault his master. How could I be silent if God's truth is assailed or attacked? I, I've summarized that in modern English to say, even, you know, um, even a dog barks if, a, if his master's attacked. We're less than dogs if God's word is attacked, and yet we remain silent. Years ago, um, when I was a very, a very low-ranking officer, I was invited to dinner with all the high brass. And so we're at this restaurant, and the highest-ranking officer who I had the unpleasant experience of having to sit next to, so here I am, sitting next to the highest ranking guy in the room. And they're all, well, they were all high ranking, but, and I was at the bottom. But anyway, so here I am sitting next to the highest ranking one. And he said this, he said, well, you know, um, Buddhism, Taoism, Zenism, it's all the same God. It's all the same God. Oh, he said that. And you know what I thought? Even a dog barks when his master is attacked. Here, the word of God, literally, the word of God was attacked. And so I took a deep breath, looked around at all these extremely high-ranking officers. And I had dinner. And at the end of it, I meowed my way home like a sick, diseased, 
I didn't stand up for the truth. And that really bothered me for years. For years it bothered me. Would it have been uncomfortable to, to do what I should have done? Absolutely. But 20 minutes of uncomfortableness is far better than years and years of regret for not doing the right thing. I'll tell you that. So, let me cover another point before I get in here. We're talking about some strong words and opposing one another. What am I not talking about? Or what is this text not talking about? Remember, the issue here is going to be the gospel. Now, that's kind of, that's, that's important. That, that ranks it, well, number one, up there with inerrancy and, you know, other doctrines that we absolutely have to agree on. We're not talking about um, eschatological, eschatological positions. So, you know, use a big word here. It means end times views. Um, you know, within this church, I have no doubt. We have dispensationalists. We have um, we have covenantal. We have federalists. We have new covenantal. We have there's just a big conglomeration of all different kinds of views. Did you know that within the premillennial camp? Okay, so you might be one of those dispensationalists. So you're premillennial and you believe in pre-trib. That was your view of the rapture. Just within premillennialism, within this room, there's four categories. I guarantee it. There's the pre-tribbers, there's the mid-tribbers, the post-tribbers, and the pre-rathers like me, who uh, have the correct view. <laughs> We're not talking about that. Within this room, there are varying degrees of different belief concerning the charismatic gifts. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about different issues like, for example, with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who are indeed brothers and sisters, they believe in a much different mode of baptism than we do. We're not talking about that. When do you stand up and you oppose somebody just like you're opposing the devil when the gospel is the uh, target? Well, I wrote a long list of things that shouldn't be. Let's talk about the text again. So when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. New King James Version, because he was to be blamed. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean he stood condemned? So it, it's going to stem from the, the whole idea here, as we're going to learn in the text, is hypocrisy. So hypocrisy is not to believe wrongly. That's what we call unorthodoxy. You believe something wrongly. You know, whenever I got saved in 1990, I was a soldier in the army. First thing, I was so on fire for God. It just, I mean, you know how I didn't remember the days. And, um, and I wrote this book. I just read Matthew, Mark 16. And so I wrote this little pamphlet on my old word processor, The Necessity of Water Baptism for Salvation. Yeah, I only had about four days of being a Christian, so give me a break. But that was not a good That's not a good interpretation of the text. There, um, we're not talking about unorthodoxy. We're talking about when you know something is true, and you play like it's not. That's what's going on here with this hypocrisy. So he stood condemned for it. He stood. He was to be blamed. He knew better. Now, how do we know he knew better? Well, I'll give you four reasons. Number one, Peter's vision. You remember when Peter had this vision and, 
um, in, in Acts where uh, all these animals fly out of the sky. And this is right before he's going to be called to meet with Cornelius, a Gentile, by the way. And so all these animals come down and then he, Peter hears a voice that says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. What's Peter's response to God on high? God the most high. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. No, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. That was his response. Unclean. And what do we find just a little bit later? What God has declared clean, you don't call common or unclean, a common thing. Peter had that vision. He knew that. Um, Cornelius, oh my goodness. So immediately after that vision, he gets called to Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile. And then he and his, um, while Peter is, oh, by the way, number one, he goes into the house. We don't even think about that as modern-day Christians. We don't even think about going into somebody's home. Do you know what Jews certainly did? If you're going to go into a Gentile's house, well, you just wouldn't do it, first of all. But let me give you some reasons why. Have you read the book of Leviticus? Uh, you don't know that there's not a woman who had a, uh, a child three or four days ago or maybe six days ago and wasn't sitting in that very chair. She's unclean. If it's a male child, she's unclean for an entire week. Now, it's not sinful to have a child. In fact, God commanded, be fruitful and multiply, right? But do you know Leviticus teaches? No, you, that's, that's unclean. Now, think of when I say unclean, don't think sin. Think ritual purity. Okay? There's a reason why I shaved and we're happy you don't even recognize me. Um, the other half is wondering if he's playing a hypocrite. You know. Um, well, listen, this pulpit is holy. And this doesn't make me more justified uh, before God. No, but it's a big deal to stand up before here and preach the word of God. So there's a sense in which I'm doing, I'm, I'm you know, cleaning my cleaning myself up, making myself, if you want to say it's a bad analogy, ritually pure to stand up behind the pulpit. Bad analogy, but get the idea. They were very careful not to eat with a Gentile as well. You don't know that he didn't fix bacon with his eggs this morning. And now he's going to make you chicken. That would make you impure. Also, Peter, following this excitement of Cornelius and, 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 and the Holy Spirit falling upon these Gentiles and they're speaking with new tongues and all this stuff is going on. You know what happens? In fact, let's look at that text. Um, it's kind of cool. It's in Acts. Um, very interestingly, and it's Acts 10, by the way. On this whole section. So we're going to go down to first you get him. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius. Uh, look at verse 28. So Acts 10, 28. Now, this is when Peter arrives at Cornelius's house. And he said to them, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any, any other nation. But God has shown me that I cannot call any person common or unclean. So Peter has no problem going into the house of the Gentile. He's not worried about um, whether they eat bacon with their eggs. Now, we'll continue on. There's one more thing. We just read a little while ago when we read Galatians 2, 1 through uh, 10. 
we read where Paul went before the apostles, the, the disciples, and he preached the gospel, and they added nothing to him. And he refused to have Titus circumcised in order to obey the law of Moses as part of the gospel. Nope, he refused it. So that was another thing that happened. So there's, there's four reasons why, a minimum, you can come up with more, but those four reasons why Pete, uh, Paul, Peter, in this particular case, was condemned or stood condemned. So Peter had this vision. He sees Cornelius and the Gentiles get saved. Can we make some excuses for him? You know, the reality is no. You can't make any excuses for Peter, but I'm not going to stand behind, you know, and, and just ooh, look at Peter and how bad he is. Little old me? No, I'm not willing to do that. So I am going to make some excuses for him. Number one, we are spoiled. We're spoiled because we have this book. And 2,000 years removed, we absolutely take it for granted. But let's go back in time. Let's go back to this issue. When, when this happened in Galatia, remember, we have the book of Galatians. We have the book of Romans. We have the letter to the Corinthians. Do you know what was written at the time that this occurred? Maybe the book of James. That's it. Maybe the book of James. Nothing else. There was nothing. There is no New Testament. You can't go to 2 Corinthians 3 on the New Covenant and or argue it from Romans 4 on justification. But those letters and books don't exist. All you had was the Old, text, Old Testament text. That's all you had. Number two, Gentile salvation was new. Literally, it had just happened with Cornelius. I mean, we're like really close in time when this event happens. So if we're going to make excuses, there was no New Testament. Gentile salvation was new. And then I'll go to another one. Keeping the law was biblical. Would anybody disagree with that? Keeping the law was biblical. Genesis 17 gives the command for circumcision. Leviticus 1, uh, Leviticus 12, verses 1 and 2 gives the command for circumcision. Um, you, these guys, these Judaizers, these men from James were merely quoting the Bible. Not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but we got to tell them to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That includes the dietary laws. So, no New Testament. Gentile salvation is new. Keeping the law is biblical. Kind of hard to argue with that one. There's another one. Oh, and interestingly, it wasn't like the Judaizers were coming up saying, or these men from, you know, uh, from James, we're coming up saying, listen, in order to be saved, you have to walk seven times around a campground and you have to throw a stone into it. It wasn't that kind of, it was quoting Leviticus, quoting Genesis. Um, it really puts it in, in, in text or context. Uh, Leviticus. I love what the pastor said this morning, which is my next point. Pastor said this morning in his, um, study, he said that if you read, you're even blessed by reading the book of Leviticus. You know why? It makes you appreciate the new covenant. It just makes you, there's a professor who uh, he teaches, uh, he, he studied Leviticus for 20 years. That's what he's done. Sounds exciting. 
Um, but that's what he's done, and that he's a professor of Old Testament history. And he makes his students the first week of class read the book of Leviticus and keep the laws to the best of their ability for an entire week. Now, it's not to get them saved or hesitant. It's just to teach them, hey, follow as closely as you can these, these laws written in Leviticus. And so they do that. And do you know at the end of that, that week, they come back and they say, uh, according to him, they say, you know, it's amazing that we, we, we focused on, I mean, it, the Old Testament, Old, or Old Covenant, not Old Testament, the Old Covenant laws were, it made you think about God and his law all the time. And here's what the students would come back and report. If we're to give that much effort, or should the Jews, if the Jews were to give that much effort to ritual purity, how much more should they be thinking about moral purity? You see one of the reasons why God did that? They were constantly consumed with every check in every little box, and the reality of it was it was pointing them to, you ought to be concerned about moral purity even more. Um, we'll go on in the text. Um, oh, yeah, no, last point. Can't miss my last point. It's most important. The new covenant was new. The new covenant was new. We take that. I tell you, we just take it for granted. We've, uh, I, they had Jeremiah 31, so there were some indications of what the new covenant was going to be looked like. Um, interesting how Paul describes it. Remember, this wasn't written yet. Go to 2 Corinthians 3. You don't have to, but uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is, is comparing the ministry of, of the, the covenant, the first covenant, the, the ministry of the law, Versus the ministry of the spirit, he calls one a ministry of death, the other the ministry of the spirit brings life. But he can, I'm going to throw an analogy at you. You know, every evening, and I love living out in the country. I don't know where this comes from, but I want to tell you the story. I love living out in the country. When you live in the city, you don't get the appreciation of the massiveness of the universe. And you can't help but just in that dark, when you're away from the lights and you're looking up at all the stars, you are just scratching the surface of the immenseness of God. Well, about evening, there's this one star that shows up first every evening. It's really a planet. It's called Venus, but it's, we call it the evening star. And it's bright. And it has glory. And the glory is real. I mean, it, it's so bright that it's... you. you even before all the lights go out, right? You, you can see that evening star. The glory is real. The glory is awesome. But the sun's going to come up. And when the sun comes up, do you know what happens to the evening star? Because of the glory of the sun, which so far surpasses the glory of the evening star, not to say that the evening star wasn't glorious, it was, but because the sun's glory is so far surpassing it, what once had glory, which was real glory, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory of that which has surpassed it. I just quoted 2 Corinthians 3. And the new covenant is my fourth reason why. No Bible. Peter had, I'm going to make excuses. He had no Bible. Gentile salvation's new. Uh, what else did we add? The uh, Oh, keep it. Oh, yeah, the guys were arguing. Keep the law. I mean, let me read the Bible. Don't get a tattoo. Leviticus 19. You know, it's funny. 
Some of you may believe not to get a tattoo. I'm not attacking that. Um, but I was raised very strictly and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things, oh, by the way, don't get a tattoo. Uh, a, it costs money. B, there's a risk. There's health risk. I just, okay. Unless you're going to get a certain kind of tattoo. Have you seen those reform tattoos? They're pretty cool. Uh, I'm messing with you on tattoos. But let me tell you what. When we go back to Leviticus 19, it's very interesting how we as Christians pick and choose the application of certain laws. As much as somebody would scream and holler about getting a tattoo, you know, go to Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to show you something really cool. You know, somebody might scream and holler about getting a tattoo, saying, well, the Bible says you can't get it. Yeah, well, you know, in that same chapter, look at Leviticus um, no, Leviticus 19, Leviticus, did I say 19? 19, verse 1919. Uh, so go to 1919, if you have your Bible. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breathe with a different kind. Listen to this. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, and something all of you today are guilty of, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two kinds of material. It's funny that those who would condemn another for having a tattoo are probably wearing a polyester cotton combination. In verse 23, when you come into the land and, and plant any tree of any kind, it's going to be forbidden for the first three years. And then he's going to go on to say, but the fourth year, certainly off limits because it's holy. It's going to be a sacrifice to God. And the fifth year, well, then you can eat it. Now, how many of us, when we go to the store, are concerned about the year of the tree when it grew that orange. How many of us, we want to see the date. We want to make sure that this is from the fifth year on. You could go on. And then in verse 28, oh, in verse 27. I love this one. Right in, this is the same chapter, Leviticus 19, 27. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Now you know why you usually don't shave, right? <laughs> Kidding. Verse, the next verse. Here's the next verse. Now, the, don't mar your, you know, don't, don't be cutting on your beard here. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, I'm not here to take a position on tattooing. I just, I just throw that out to say that's, in the same chapter, in the same section, only verses away from when you can eat a particular fruit from a fruit tree and what kind of clothing you have to wear. We are very inconsistent many times as Christians pulling over covenantal law. Anyway, the new covenant was new. So, um, next point. Oh, yeah, I skipped Ephesians 2.14. If you're we're still on this point about the new covenant is new. Ephesians 2.14. Listen to this. Now remember, they didn't have this. They couldn't run to Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace. They didn't have that. They didn't have Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in a new way 
of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We sing a song, Cornerstone, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. The, the morning star analogy isn't a very good, but for the sake of ritual purity is that evening star glory. The sun is the blood of Christ's glory. It's really a bad um, analogy because it's so much greater than that, but it's, it's not that the other doesn't have glory. It's just that the new covenant that's for Christ, Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, let's go on in the text. See where we're at on time. The new covenant was new. We, oh yeah, the blood of animal circumcision following dietary laws. What was that going to do for your sin? Nothing. In fact, if you go back and read the book of Leviticus, uh, you know what you repeatedly see? For the unintentional sins of the people. For the unintentional sins of the people. There's two places, maybe more, forgive me if I'm wrong, where it talks about high-handed sins. Now, high-handed sin is literally when you got a fist up and you're you're doing something like cursing God or something. You know, a high-handed sin would be violating the Sabbath. You know better. You, you, don't, you don't do that. And that's a high-handed sin. You know what the penalty for high-handed sin is? Death. There's one penalty, death. So you got the unintentional sins and then the high-handed sins. Death penalty for anything that's, in essence, intentional and serious. And then there's that uh, other category, which is unintentional. That's what ritual purity dealt with. Okay, so let's go back to our text. For before certain men came from James. Well, who are these certain men? Before certain men came from James, he's eating and drinking and you know having fellowship within the homes of Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, these other guys come. Who, who are these guys? Well, I'll suggest to you, and maybe I don't have the absolute correct answer, but I think I've got a pretty good idea. I see three types of Jews in Galatians and Acts. Just my study of it, I see three kinds. One kind will start with uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That was what we just read earlier. Remember how, how uh, uh, Paul describes them as how they secretly came in and to spy out our liberty. He uses really nasty, vicious words to talk about their character. And then in Acts 15, um, there's another group. In Acts 15, there's another group I see. And, and you know, this group, it says that... There was, um, let me just flip over to Acts 15. There's another, and I'm going to say that this group, so the first group, they're not believers. They're, just, they're not believers. The, the second group, to, to me, appears that they're believers, but they believe you should obey the law of Moses and you should be circumcised. They're going to be found in Acts 15, 5. But some believers, the Bible calls them believers, so I think they're believers. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The, the, the text says that they're believers, so I'm going to say there's a second group. And then there's a third group. And we're going to be looking at that third group. The third group is those who know better. Those who know better and yet act like 
that the party from James, this this group of the circumcision, that they're right. That's that's the third group. Okay, so before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separating separated himself, fearing the party of circumcision, eating with Gentiles. Now, uh, we we find other examples of this. Remember when Jesus was criticized for he received sinners and eats with them. I mean, it's bad enough you receive sinners, but you got to eat with these folks. Luke 15. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Two imperfect tenses here in the Greek. Cool words. The only time I'll throw Greek at you because it's just cool. Um, When you look at these words, they drew back and separated themselves. Peter drew back and separated. Here's the first idea, the drew back. It's a term that means avoid. Uh, literally, it, it's avoidance. Uh, Hupostello, if you're interested. Um, it, it, it would be like you're walking in, this, in, the, in, the, in the grocery store, H-E-B, whatever. You're walking, and it's just packed because it's Mother's Day. And what are you doing as you're pushing your cart? You're going left. You're dodging right. You're, you know, you're avoiding. People. Well, that's this idea of, of um, this, this term, that he was, they, he was first initially avoiding them. It wasn't necessarily that obvious. Also, because it's imperfect, it shows that he began, this is a process. He was doing it over a period of time. He began avoiding them. But then it turns into he drew back. I'm sorry, separated himself. He drew back initially, avoids, and then he separates. Now, that word means literally separate, exclude. That's really a really good term, to exclude, to absolutely not go to or be with. So imagine originally that Peter is avoiding these Gentiles, and then he begins excluding them, or himself from them. It was then, folks, obvious. And do you know how, it's not in the text, but I'm going to argue that this is true. Do you know that the early Christians practiced the Lord's Supper at every meal? Every meal. Do you know when Peter excludes these guys, it would have been obvious because they would not have been partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, You, by definition, just created a second-class Christian. That's exactly what you've done by that. That's what Peter did by that. Created a second-class Christian. Now, I forgot to give you the title of my sermon. It's second-class Christians. Do they exist? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. Now, listen to Luke. You know that old, they used to have little wrist things. What would Jesus do? When I was a kid, that was real popular, so you could look at it. Remember, hmm, I shouldn't be drinking that beer, um, or for whatever reason, right? I mean, that was what would Jesus do? And actually, it was kind of a helpful reminder of, of you know, constantly thinking of thinking about, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, we actually have a text that lines up in Luke fifteen. Listen, listen to this, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this is going to be powerful. 
This is exactly the situation Peter is in. He's got the Gentiles, and except these are actually Gentile believers, Gentile Christians. So Jesus looked at them, and he said, he told them a parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one which is lost until he finds it. In other words, he's going to search for him. Now, this is Jesus's version of dealing with Gentiles. I would argue, I don't know that I'm right, but I, I think I am. Oh, and the text continues, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, rejoice with me because I found that which is lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That was the way Jesus would have handled the situation. But this is where I'm going to argue. Maybe I'm not right. Give me some grace if, if you have a different view. I, I could almost see Jesus whenever the Pharisees attack him and say, hey, you know what? Uh, you, you're, you're receiving sinners and you're eating with them. I could almost say, see him saying this. No, I'm not eating with the sinners. Instead, I go out and search for them. I go out and call them by name. While I'm searching for them, I go out and I find them. And when I find them, I put them on my shoulders and I bring them back to my home and I sit them at my table. I don't eat with them. They eat with me. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, but I can see Jesus saying that. We sing a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Jesus sought me. When a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Well, let's continue on in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritic, hypocritically along with him. The rest of the Jews. So first it's Peter. He, in essence, is leading everybody. But it's interesting that the text says that the rest of the Jews this is, it would have been a church. It would, before these guys from James get there, it was one church, one body, one Lord's Supper, one communion, one fellowship, one God. Everything was one until these guys show up. And then all of a sudden, Peter goes first, then the other Jews follow him. But the text says that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that tells us something about them. They knew better too. They knew better, but they feared this circumcision party. The text goes on to say, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy or led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. You remember in Shakespeare, et tu rute? Act two. I could see Paul saying, Act two, Barnabas. Act two. Why? Let me give you some things about Barnabas. Do you know who introduced 
the formerly guy named Saul, now the Apostle Paul. You know who introduced Paul to the apostles? Barnabas. By the way, they were scared of him. They were scared of him. And it was Barnabas who came in, son of encouragement. He came to the rescue. He was the one who took him to the, and that's in Acts 9, 26. It was Barnabas who accompanied Paul to Cyprus, to Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra. And no doubt when Paul got stoned and left for dead, I don't know the text doesn't say it, but I bet you anything with Barnabas at his side, it would have been Barnabas who would have cared for his wounds. John Piper says, past experiences and past usefulness are no guarantee of future obedience. The Christian life is a race to be run and finished. It is a fight to be fought and won. It is a faith to be kept all the way to the end. There's no place for coasting or drifting. But when I saw that their conduct, we go on in the text, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, you know, earlier in Galatians, we read that Paul saw that they were, you know, they weren't following the truth of the gospel by trying to get Titus to be circumcised. Paul here says, look, when I saw that their conduct, their hypocrisy was not in step with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel. He said, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force, same word as forcing Titus to be circumcised, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, I want to point out a couple of things in this text, sorry. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, that's, you know, that, that's an interesting word, orthopedeo. It, it's from which we get orthopedics. I have one physician back there, and he's like, yep, I know that Greek word. Um, <laughs> orthopedics. And, and it literally means to walk straight, to build someone up so that they can walk straight. Well, when Paul saw that their conduct wasn't walking straight, with what? The truth of the gospel. Not all the other different views, the, 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 you know, the things that we would call secondary or tertiary. But this was the very gospel. He then confronts them and confronts them with the, well, I'll just, the, the truth of the gospel. And what is the truth of the gospel? Well, uh, we let's go on in the text. Oh, yeah. You know what? Just, sorry, I'm going to backtrack. Mark 7. That's another one. You, you know, it just dawned on me. Hey, Peter, in Mark 7, he should have known, as would the Jews, as would Barnabas, when Jesus, in Mark 7, 18, Mark 7, you don't have to, but Mark 7, 18, I'll read it. This is another thing that they knew. They, these guys, they knew better. Mark 7. Uh, go, go back to uh, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a man that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about it. And he said to them, 
Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person must from outside cannot defile him since it does not enter his heart, but but his stomach and it is expelled. And here it is. Thus, he declared all foods clean. That's during the gospels. I mean, that's Jesus's ministry. That's one more, um, might add that to the fifth reason why these guys are playing hypocritical. They knew these things and yet they were treating these Gentiles for not following dietary laws and, and circumcision, but in this particular case, dietary laws in particular, um, they were treating them like second-class Christians. With regard to circumcision, my text, this text, doesn't deal with circumcision. It's in the very far background. This is about dietary laws. Colossians 2.11 says this, In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised um, with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The fact of the matter is the circumcision that counts is the circumcision of the heart. You get that in regeneration. Some practical truths of the text. If we look at this old section of scripture and um, we say, what, 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 are some, what are some things that we can take home? Here's just a few that I've come up with. Great, godly, bold, and proven godly men can give in to hypocrisy. Peter proved himself in Acts 2, Pentecost. He healed, He very boldly proclaims the gospel and, and heals a beggar in Acts chapter 3. He preaches the gospel, by the way, in Acts 11. Uh, Peter's final conclusion is, wow, you know what? These, these Gentiles, you know what? God, they're, they're saved just like we are. They have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, even great godly and spirit-filled Christians can give in to hypocrisy. Number two. It's the same blood of Jesus. It's the same blood of Jesus that justifies us. Our faith in Christ gives us, according to Romans 3, that righteousness of God. It is by faith. There's an analogy I sometimes use about it. Analogies when you're talking about the Bible never seem to work out, right? Because they're just... you know, it's almost like comparing finite with the infinite, because it is. Um, but if you have a pure glass of water filled all the way to the brim, what would you add to that water to make it more pure? Because anything you add to it makes it impure. It decreases its quality. And so it is with the righteousness we have by faith in Christ. You want to add the laws of Moses? You're you're going to make that impure. You want to add um, circumcision? You make it impure. You have the absolute righteousness of Christ by faith in him. It's just you can't improve upon that. Uh, Another point to take away. The righteousness by faith alone, cannot be improved upon anything in this world. 
no matter your effort, no matter your, doesn't matter what it is. And my last point, speaking from personal experience, having been that diseased alley cat who meowed his way home, standing up for the gospel can be a painful and lonely business. Painful and lonely when you stand up for the gospel. Um, I'm going to begin a second sermon. It's found in John 19, but it is what I want to leave you with. The second sermon goes like this. It is finished. Jesus preached that on the cross. It is the shortest sermon ever preached, and to me, the most powerful preached. When Jesus died on the cross, he finished it. I do want to say one thing at the very end. This is not to say, we're not to, when I say, oh, these dietary laws and the laws of Moses, this is not to say that we're not to treat the laws if it's uh, just a recommendation or otherwise. It's not. We're to pursue holiness. We're to pursue righteousness. By the way, um, love and obedience in the New Testament are used interchangeably. I mean, literally. You, you really, Jesus says, you love me? Or does he say, obey my commandments? None of, none of what I've said today takes away from our pursuit of, of holiness. None of it takes away from um, if um, when you're talking about matters of law, sometimes it can be misconstrued into, oh, wow, he's saying that, you know what, we don't, we don't have to obey the law. I mean, that's exactly what it's, no, 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 no. What I am saying, though, is that you absolutely the dietary laws, all this, all this stuff that came in uh, that was now meshed with the gospel have been abolished by Christ. He fulfilled them, completed them in toto, and they are done. Jesus declared all foods clean. You don't have to worry about having bacon with your eggs and somehow that. And, you know, one last point. Um, I'll wrap it up. And in, in, when I was uh, in Fort Stockton, uh, I was at a at a, believe it or not, a Baptist church, I'm surprised. One of the deacons had gotten into that um, Jewish, uh, what do they call it, Hebrew root stuff. He'd gotten into that. And we were talking about the book of Galatians, in fact. And he had gotten into this Hebrew root stuff and was saying things like, it's necessary to obey the laws of Moses and circumcision for those who are Christians. And so I had him sitting in my living room. This is a deacon of the church. Had him sitting in my living room in that Fort Stockton, Texas. And I said, you mean to tell me that if, if you were to meet a Christian uh, and you asked him, I guess you would have to ask him, are you circumcised? And his answer was no. You would instruct him to be circumcised. And his answer, yes. Now, Last text, Galatians 5. Y'all know where I'm going with this one. And then we'll, we'll end. Galatians chapter 5. What can you add to the gospel to be further saved, to be better saved, to be fully saved? Well, the answer is nothing. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, 
Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. One of the biggest misconceptions I think we get into is, like in this case, they're bringing over circumcision and, and dietary laws. You don't get that opportunity with Christianity. You bring over one law, what does scripture say? You bring them all over. You bring them all over. And if you're going to use it for your justification, then you have to perfectly obey everything. And not, not one. Now, if you bring over one, then you're going to have to obey them all. Okay, so Jesus ended it with this. It is finished. My prayer is that we, as a body, we would take seriously, and, and you know what? Learn from my mistakes. Learn from my mistakes. Take seriously our, the, the, I would say, the, the necessity to defend the word of God. Not the necessity in the sense that God needs his word defended. He does not. But from our standpoint, especially when the gospel is attacked, um, stand up. Be a dog. Don't be that diseased alley cat that goes meowing his way home. Bark when your master is attacked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us this morning. Father, I pray that uh, I faithfully expose the text that you had given us. Lord, I ask that you would give us that boldness to stand up in the toughest times um, and do what is right and defend the gospel. It is the gospel alone that brings salvation. And, and Lord, we are so thankful for that. Having now been 2,000 years removed and we're so forgetful of all the advantages that you have given to us in today's time. Father, I ask that uh, we would be cognizant of the many blessings and privileges that you've given us and that we uh, not take them for granted, but rather use them for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yeah.